what is the overarching topic that I'm talking about? Because I want to tell you about this new issue of tricycle. I want to talk about politics and Buddhism. I want to talk about uh, being awake and engaged in the world without being adversarial. Uh, or even being adversarial without being enemies. Um, so I kept thinking, what's the, what's the guiding Buddhist principle around all of it? And I keep going back to the uh, Eightfold Path, the, which is, I'm sure you know, the fourth noble truth of the Buddha, that uh, there is suffering in this world as a first. To be alive is to find that experience is inherently unsatisfactory. Keep needing to accommodate to changing circumstances. That's actually why I particularly suggested this morning that in your sitting, you pay attention not to what's happening, but what happens to what's happening, which is that it's changing all the time. That it's really one of the fundamental insights that people hope to experience when they practice is the constantly changing nature of experience. Not that it's constantly painful, but that it's constantly changing. And with that comes the understanding that there's no place that we can rest. You have a wonderful experience, it passes. Something else happens, something else happens. We're always needing to accommodate to what's happening. Okay this, okay that, all right, this is happening. This isn't what I expected, but it's happening. This isn't pleasant, but it's happening. Even this is pleasant, and it won't last, but it is pleasant. How to be in this moment and say, okay, this is the whole of reality right now. There is nothing but this moment. What can I do right now to be awake in it and respond to it in a way that makes me most alive? Fundamentally, I think the answer to that whole question, which I hope I come around to in one hour, is that the, the permutations of the heart when it meets ordinary situations or painful situations or extraordinarily um, uh, fortunate situations are that it wishes well when, if the heart's contented, it wishes well in ordinary situations. I think we have well-wishing hearts, most of us. I think if our neurology is reasonable, if we've had reasonable lives, we, I think that human beings are um, amiable animals, by and large, if they haven't been hurt in some bad way. They have difference in character, but by and large, I think we're collegial animals. We meet each other in friendship. I think that we have the innate tendency to console, if we can, that um, if I read t- when I read to you that little note about who can take in this cat, even that you couldn't take it in, didn't you feel bad for the cat? You don't know the cat, you don't know Kathy Cheney, but all of a sudden people are in trouble and a cat is in trouble. Something happens and you, and even you know you can't take the cat, you were probably hoping, hope somebody takes the cat, weren't you? Weren't you very excited? Gail said, I'll take the cat. <laughs> Phew. Another one of those troublesome situations in life just got answered. I think that that's what we naturally are, and that when I feel myself in that heart space of being able to, uh, of actually respond, responding to someone else, 
I feel happy. I think it's actually I feel happy with the thought I'm a caring person. I also feel happy because when I'm a caring person, I'm not all tied up in my own stuff. I'm not all caught in my own self, not selfish. And that's a great liberation. When I'm caught in my own self is when I suffer. And the ability to be aware of somebody else who needs me to wish them well or to console them or to appreciate them, the ability to notice there's a world out there is the way that I, 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 I um, keep myself out of the prison of my own small experience. It's like a jailbreak. I get out of here a little bit. So, whoa, I'm back in the world and connected to it. So thinking about what the, what did the Buddhist mean when he said there's a path to that kind of a place, the liberation of the heart, so it is responsive and can show up as a consoler, a befriender, and an appreciator, because that's how we show up. The first noble truth was it's hard to stay in that place because we, we're needing constantly to accommodate. The second noble truth is it's really hard because we keep getting caught by the, the self-serving needs that come up, by craving, by needing to have something different from how it is, sometimes translated as desire, but it's not actually desire in the sense that, um, you know, if I'm you know, hungry on the way home, I might stop off and have something for lunch. And I'd rather stop in Whole Foods than somewhere else. I have a preference, I have a desire, but it's not one ordinarily that ties my mind in a knot. It's just a, a recollection more than anything else of a decision of this is what pleases me. And, and you know, if it happens, it happens. The, the tanha, that's the second noble truth, is I can't stand if I don't get what I want. That's a different kind of thing. Third noble truth is that we could really cultivate a, a mind that says if it happens, it happens. If not, not. That's an extraordinary mind to have that sort of a mind. Like if, imagine to be able to say, I really have passionate opinions politically and I'm working as hard as I can. And if they happen, good. If they don't happen, I keep on working. What else am I going to do? Don't have to be mad at everybody. I don't have to have villains in my heart. I feel sometimes like I do. Anyway, the fourth noble truth is the path. To getting there. And you pass it all the time that you come up here on that prayer wheel because there are those eight particular wise ways to be. Wise understanding, wise thought, wise action, wise speech, wise um, livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And I think that the two path parts that are the least spoken about, in a certain sense they're the least sexy. They may get, Said they, they show up the least in people's talks, which I am beginning to appreciate as being maybe the most, most important, are right thought and right effort. Right thought comes with right understanding. is defined as really cultivating in the mind. He's his, uh, really one of the great granddaddies of Dharma books, still remains a very good basic text, What the Buddha Taught by Walpola Rahula. Um, 
Right thought denotes thoughts of selfless renunciation or detachment with thoughts of love, thoughts of nonviolence, which are extended to all beings. It's very interesting to note here, he says, that thoughts of selfless detachment, love, and nonviolence are grouped on the side of wisdom next to right understanding. This clearly shows that true wisdom is endowed with these noble qualities and that all thoughts of selfish desire, ill will, hatred, and violence are the result of a lack of wisdom in all spheres of life, whether individual, political, or social, or political. Those are three very important spheres, too, as we talk on, and I tell you, um, I'd like to tell you about some of the articles in the tricycle. The, the, one of the authors makes the point that we could be working on all of those levels to notice where there is confusion in our individual minds, in the culture around, in the society, and in the political systems. And that really what's required to make an effective change in the world is work on all of them. And for sure, work on the inside one. Work on one's own self. That an angry person can't really be working up here effectively and doing anything unless it comes through the absolute um, clarity of a peaceful mind and heart. Because then whatever we do will be imbued with some qualities of anger or violence or ill will. I think right thought is so important, uh, and the cultivation of it, which is really what right effort is about. It took me a long time to really get that right effort that comes in the, in the grouping of right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Since mindfulness and concentration are two particular kinds of um, techniques that you think of as meditation, you know, okay, I'm going to be mindful. I'm going to notice every moment and see it and understand it and penetrate it with clear awareness, really see what's happening. You see, okay, that's a mind practice. It's, a, it's a mind development. And concentration, also mind development. I'm going to put my attention on one thing and I'm just going to keep it there. I'm just going to concentrate. I'm going to build mindfulness because... It allows me to see how things work and really begin to understand the way in which the whole of, every, of thought processes and the whole of everything is put together. I'm going to concentrate because that will create the qualities in the mind that are the antidotes to the hindrances. So you can understand this and this. Right effort doesn't mean trying hard. I used to think it did. I thought it was just kind of like a the pep talk beginning to write mindfulness and write concentration, like make a big effort. It's the specific effort to notice in the mind salubrious mind states, mind states that are wholesome, mind states that pick up your own heart, that mind states that make a difference in the world, and cultivate them. Say, wow, happiness is present in me. Goodwill is present in me. Generosity is present in me. Patience is present in me. And to really rejoice in that and be happy about it and say, okay, I'm going to keep this. And also to notice, ah, ill will is present in me. I have to get rid of that now. But not just ill will is present to me, ho-hum. Ill will is present in me. I have to do something about putting it out of my mind. And that's a huge big thing because ill will, when it arises in the mind, has such a uh, 
a sense of it attacks the mind and there's nothing you can do about it, just a wait till it goes away. Or actually it's a little fun sometime, a little ill will, a little planning of revenge. And so just a little five minutes of planning of revenge, you know. And then I'll go back to sweetness, you know, but you know, revenge or I'll just call up somebody and tell them who said, Could you believe that they said that? But then after that I'm gonna be okay. And the Buddha is saying you can't do that. You poison the mind from that. That ill will is a habit. And it's an unpleasant habit. And really, it's grouped there with the contemplative mind disciplines because you're really meant to look at yourself and your own mind when it's filled with ill will and discover how painful it is, that revenge is not sweet, regardless of what anybody says about it. Or having the last word is not sweet because, you know, ta-da! It doesn't feel good, actually. So I want to talk about that right thought and right effort and how they, how they really form for me the, the context for what I want to talk about today, which is uh, religion and spirituality and politics and its place in the world and its place in the Dharma world. Maybe I'll read you one more piece from, from the Buddha, actually, from the Middle Discourses. Talking, this is a discourse called uh, Effacement. Um, a conversation that uh, the Buddha is having with a disciple named Kunda. And he's telling this disciple that it is possible to actually make a decision. Most people do it this way, I'm doing it another way. It's really quite stirring. There's an enormous list of things that you could notice and you could say, I'm doing it another way. Okay, Kunda, here's how it is. Others will be cruel, we won't be cruel. Others will be killing living things, we'll abstain. Others will take what's not given, we won't. Others will speak falsehood, we won't. Others will gossip, we won't. That you could really make those decisions. It's a long, long list. Others will be of wrong intention, we'll be of right intention. It's explaining what people who follow his discipline will do. And it's quite inspiring. It's a whole long list. Actually, 30, 44 things. Others will adhere to their own views, hold on to them tenaciously, and relinquish them with difficulty. We will not adhere to our own views or hold on to them tenaciously, but shall relinquish them easily. Now, I think so much about that, about how many people here think they relinquish views easily. I have a lot of views that are quite strong. I'd like to know them to be views and to be able to think, from time to time at least, I could be wrong. You know, it's such a relief, you know. Sometimes, in the middle of all this politics, you know, I think so strongly that the way I see it is right. And when I'm feeling that and I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, my way of seeing may not prevail, one of the ways in which I avoid feeling completely distraught is I think to myself, I could be wrong. I don't think so. But I could be wrong. I don't know. You know, it just eases my mind to think, "I I don't know. I could be wrong. 
So one more thing from the Buddha. Kunda, I say that even the inclination of mind towards wholesome states is of great benefit. The mind should be include, inclined thus. And then he goes through that whole list of 44. Others will be cruel, we won't be cruel. Others will this, we won't do it. The same thing, the whole entire list of 44. You can incline your mind in the other way. Had any number of conversations in the last few days came up in different kinds of ways about listening to vituperative talk on either side of the political spectrum. You know, I, and how um, upsetting to the mind it is to hear people speak with gleeful ill will about the other person's views, you know with clever ways of putting it. Actually, you know, I feel worse when I hear it from people who are representing, so to speak, my point of view, because I feel that they should behave themselves better, have a more high moral road. Um, I don't know. Here's a Dalai Lama. This is very interesting. Someone sent this to me this week. I believe there's an important distinction to be made between religion and spirituality. How many people here think that? <laughs> well, that's a pretty interesting thing. Okay. Religion I take to be concerned with belief in the claims to salvation of one faith tradition or another, an aspect of which is acceptance of some form of metaphysical or philosophical reality, including perhaps an idea of heaven or hell. Connected with this are religious teachings or dogma, ritual, prayers, and so on. Almost true. If I were his editor, I would fix that a little bit. But anyway. <laughs> um, but I think that religion is a body of teachings that sometimes include uh, metaphysical um, presentations. But most religions that I know are so complex that they include more than one metaphysical representation. And it's really small-minded, I think, to say Anybody believes, you know, when people start a sentence, well, Catholics believe, or Jews believe, or Buddhists believe, if the, if the sentence starts that way, you know it's a wrong sentence, before they said the rest of it, because they all believe everything. And you know, really, they do. And, uh, you know, in the, the, the more educated they are in their tradition, the more they know. There's an article in this month's tricycle about Buddhisms. That and you asked about what kind of Buddhism is it? There are so many Buddhisms. We've had lots of discussions in the teacher um, community about what do all the Buddhisms believe together. I mean, everybody has different beginning stories, different stories about Shakyamuni Buddha, different stories about who has the real, true understanding, different stories about the, the relationship between the lay and the monastic community, uh, different liturgies, um, different canons. Basically what people have been saying, I think this is pretty much true, is that uh, people believe that the presentation of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is central and valid and the sustaining centerpiece of Buddhist religious thought. 
Spirituality I take to be concerned with those qualities of the human spirit as love and compassion, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, contentment, a sense of responsibility, a sense of harmony, which bring happiness both to self and others. What do you think of that? So I certainly don't think that they are the purvey of any particular religious tradition. Here's a, a card from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, for which I sometimes teach. Uh, and uh, under their name, Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, it says, Awaken to the one truth known by many names. So one, two, three, think to yourself, what's the one truth known by many names? Suppose you had to say a sentence. The one truth known by many names is. You got a sentence you could say? More or less? Everybody? (laughs) Ready, set, go. Say it to the person next to you. Okay? Ready, set, go. Find a person next to you. Okay, everybody said? Both people said? I saw, I heard at least three people say the line that came to my mind. So let's have ten lines. What did you say? The, no, good. Well, ten different people. Okay, ready? Go. One. Who wants to say their line? God is love. And God is love. Robin. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Love thy neighbor as thyself. How many people said that line? I thought I heard that all over the place. <laughs> okay. Uh, what else? Do unto others as as you would have them do unto you. Okay, what else? Kindness. Okay. That would definitely be the one truth, the, the, the loving kindness, which sounds like do unto others as, yeah, okay. Suffering. One truth, okay. Yeah? I am that, okay. It's the name of a book by Nasargadat. Maharaj, one of Jack's teachers, just uh, non-separateness. It's all one. Maybe that's saying karma is true is another way of, maybe. Or everything causes something else and is something else in that way. No one is unrelated. There is no separation. What else? Pasquale. We're all created in God's image. You know, one of the one of the things that's an interesting subtext of what I'm hearing is it's a really important thing to notice is everybody here is at least identify has identified themselves as a Buddhist or is interested in what the Buddha taught. And we're essentially 
uh, creations of a, of a Judeo-Christian culture so that we think in lines that are Western scripture. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's, you know, that, that, that those are the ways in which we say things, like, love, love one another as I have loved you, is what comes out. Uh, just because, in a sense, I don't think that that means anything that we're not, that this is an authentic dharma that we're talking about, but that really there is one truth, and we say it in the words that we know. So one of the things that I read um, in uh, this month's tricycle, in one of the lessons on what to do, is it said, be sure to monitor the amount of disturbing input that you had every day so that your mind didn't become overwhelmed. One of my friends sent me uh, a printout of uh, Michael Savage. Everybody, <laughs> not going to read it, Maureen, don't worry about it, because I could not read it myself. I read a third of it, and uh, being attentive to uh, my mind state, um, I read a third of it, and I thought, well, that's enough. I can't do any more than that. But what I, and what I felt about it, do everybody knows who Michael Savage is? Anybody doesn't know? Tony, tell them who Michael Savage is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's extremely um it's extremely hard to read because first of all he says things that are 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 not true. He says terrible. I mean we're usually so careful about being politically and certainly uh, religiously uh, sensitive. I mean, we don't say bad things about groups of people or groups of religions or uh, communities. I mean, we would feel bad if we made an ethnic or a religious slur. I would feel very embarrassed about it. He purposely does it. <laughs> and it's, it's so painful that it has a degree of cruelty in it. Apart from the fact that it's not true, it's cruel and it's vulgar and it hurts the ears in a bad way. And what I mostly worry about when I read this is that so many people listen. He would not be on prime time unless so many people were listening. And it makes me feel very um, disturbed that so many people might find that exciting stuff to listen to and think about really fomenting... Um, some sort of terrible bad behavior. My basic sense about people is that we're not cruel or mean people, but that we could be riled up to do that, and I worry about that a lot. So it's really reckless. So one of the things that I read about uh, in uh, one of these articles is if you're going to listen to news, read some news every day or tell somebody about some news that lifts up the heart. Tell them something good. Tell them 100,000 people were on a peace march in Beijing yesterday. They say, oh, good, that's wonderful, 100,000 people in a peace march in Beijing. The, the, the piece that I brought you that really I loved yesterday is I read the whole account of uh, the post-swimming 
uh, Olympics. You've been watching the Olympics? So I've been reading the Olympics in the New York Times. And there is such a sweet picture of here uh, of um, Ian Thorpe and Peter van der Hugenband, who was second in the men's 200-meter freestyle. And uh, you know, exactly what they said, they both swam incredible races, you know, and the Australian won. And uh, the, uh, the Dutchman, who won second, won first in the last Olympics. And he's congratulating him over the lane lines here. And it says that apparently one of the newspaper commentators said to him, what did you say to him? He said, I said to him, now it's one all, and I hope I see you in Beijing in four years. <laughs> and that was a really sweet thing to say. And then they interviewed the man who was second, and the, and, and the American, Michael Phelps, who was third. And everybody said, it's such an honor to swim with the best swimmers in the world. It doesn't matter that I'm second or third. One of us had to win. It's an incre a complete and tremendous honor to share, to be here and to be doing that and to see people who are, look who I'm swimming against. These are wonderful swimmers. How to make everybody, how to celebrate the victory of the person next to you. It's been a, on my, uh, I don't know, it's a little bit, maybe you'll find me politically incorrect. It's been on my bulletin board for a few years. <laughs> it's a Viking on uh, uh, the number one place on a podium getting the, you know, he's wearing, you know, obviously it's a cartoon, he's wearing a Viking outfit. And uh, uh, we particularly keep this on the bulletin board because my son-in-law is a Swede and we, and a very mild-mannered, peace-loving Swede, so we cut out all the Viking cartoons as you know, <laughs> bloodthirsty that we can have. And so here's this Viking standing on the place number one on the podium. And there's no one on place number two and place number three. And the end of his sword is dripping with blood. So uh, <laughs> this has been up for some years. Uh, the, the other one that's up is three people standing on a podium. And they're all with flowers and smiling. And uh, in the mind of uh, one of them on the side is the image of him punching out, the one on, on, on block two, of him punching out the person on lane one. But the thing is, uh, who won? But the thing is that the, I'm sure that the person on place two would have loved to be two seconds or two tenths of a second faster and beat the person on lane one. But we have as human beings the possibility of saying, "I wish I would have won, but I didn't. You did great. I'll see you in Beijing." Uh, that that we have that ability to celebrate other people and make their proficiency ours. You know. That in, in essence, it, it seems to me it's a tiny point, but I think in this moment that someone celebrates the other person, they retrieve their own, their own heart from having fallen down. They say, wow, do I feel bad? No, I swam with the best swimmers in the whole world. That makes you feel better. So instead of being a failure, you're somebody who swam with the best swimmers in the whole world. How not to have adversaries, how not to make people wrong, how not to begrudge people what they've got. This may be a banal kind of a thing to bring in, but I've been thinking about it this week. Also, with somebody in this list who said, be sure to think of somebody every day. Just tell somebody some good news. 
So I talked to James Shaheen yesterday on the phone. I called him about um, this tricycle that came. James Shaheen is the editor of Tricycle. And this is a really, uh, and, this, and this tricycle issue is not about we should be out in the world making a difference. Tricycle often has articles about activism in poor communities or in, um, in reforming the prison system. So no one could say that they are politically partisan. Who would not like to reform the prison communities? Everybody would like to do that. But here is a, is a it, this particular issue has an article of, uh, interviewing Dennis Kucinich. Um, it uh, frankly takes a view. Wes Nisker, one of our friends and colleagues here at Spirit Rock, has written an article called Confessions of a Bush Bashing Buddhist. <laughs> so that's pretty straightforward. Uh, 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 so I, uh, I called uh, James Sheen and we talked about it. And he said, well, in a certain sense, I felt like I was taking a, a risk. And I'm bracing myself for a deluge of uh, letters that say, this is really defaming. First of all, this is really defaming Buddhism or lowering Buddhism. We should keep Buddhism on some high, moral, lofty plane where we only talk about the purification of the individual heart. And there's somebody in this magazine who writes an article really emphasizing that part of practice. And, he, and uh, James Shaheen was saying to me, the truth is that the Dharma community is overwhelmingly liberal in their voting style. They, they have a, the results of a poll that they did of readers. And he said, really, this represents uh, the thinking of the Buddhist community. Now, can you be a Republican and go to... Buddhist retreats, I imagine. Certainly think so. I hope so. You know, some of you may vote Republican. I actually, um, I actually can think of conservative columnists whose point of view I have a certain amount of respect for because they really are conservative columnists. They have certain views about fiscal responsibility. They feel, as I do, that the Constitution is a very important centerpiece of American politics. They're very strong on civil liberties. I, you know, I don't think that this government is a conservative government. There's been a lot of stuff on the internet about that. But I, the, what really James and I were talking about is although this, this issue is very straightforward about being opposed to this administration, that uh, the question of should Buddhism be interested, should be allied with one party or another, it's not what it's about. It's, that Buddhism is allied with certain values that seem to be more represented by one political party at this point. It could be otherwise, you know. Maybe has been otherwise in the history of these two main political parties. So that the reason I brought you that, that thing that the Dalai Lama said is uh, about spirituality being concerned with qualities of the human spirit, such as compassion, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, a sense of responsibility, which bring happiness both to the self and others, could say, yes, I am in favor of, the, of cultivating those. I'm in favor of cultivating a government that governs that way. And I'm in, I'm in favor of cultivating those as um, heart states in our children as we bring them up in our schools. 
could teach them that. One of the things that I think about a lot is, is that teachable? I really think about this, um, about do you teach compassion? Uh, can you teach kindness and generosity? How much is that part of the genetic code? How much is it part of our nervous system to be uh, feisty and retaliatory uh, or conciliatory and spacious? How much is it part of our nervous system? How much is it part of our psychological development, how we get brought up? How much is it part of our family's ethos? How much is it part of our the spiritual uh, community in which our, our family raises us up, if it does? What do you think? I actually think all of the above on that. Yes. I think they all make a difference. I think we're born differently. Um, I know that. That you know, anybody has more than two children here and raised up more than two children. Anybody raised up more than two children? You'd be willing to say nobody is raised, nobody is born with the same nervous system. Some people more relaxed and spacious, and some people more tense. I think that. But I think that families have ethoses about how they live and what kinds of things they talk about. And I think that the, the community structures, the schools, the churches that we go to all have doctrines that they teach. Let's see, I said, I said, I wrote myself a note. I said, tell everybody what's on page 73. Well, you know, the whole magazine is all yellowed up. You have to go out and get a tricycle. And, <laughs> and then write a letter to James Shaheen and tell him what, a, what you think of this. You don't have to tell him you love it. Uh, just tell him what you think of it. It's a, g- a lot of great things. Um, lest I forget to tell you about this later, um, Michelle McDonald, who is one of my friends and colleagues who teaches, said uh, about the uh, relationship between looking at communities, looking at the world, and looking at one, one's own heart. She says uh, meditation is one of the ways that you can really begin to see how, how individual hearts are manifest in the world. First, the person who is writing this article, I think this is uh, Donald's article, he wrote a great article in this magazine. I like it a lot. He said, uh, in mindfulness practice, we study our reactive tendencies. We study in depth, often more than we might like, our tendencies to be judgmental, to overplan, to blame ourselves and our others, to engage in endless inner dialogue about minor issues, or fixate on past or future events, or somaticize emotional difficulties. Anybody thinks they do any of those things? <laughs> I thought that one sentence said, that's about it. <laughs> My friend Annie Lamott says, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. I wouldn't want to go out in it alone. <laughs> but uh, here's uh, Michelle McDonald says, we, can, see, we come, can come to see the commonalities between events in the world and our minds. As Vipassana teacher Michelle McDonald suggests, quote, today reporting from Baghdad, my mind, a light of sniping going on, an explosion on the, end of t- on the edge of town. 
that's what goes on. That's what goes on. It's a microcosm of the world. Anyway, what really interests me a lot in terms of the Buddhist values is this particular little tiny story. I want to read it to you. Until 1976, David Kaczynski had been living in the, un, the unassuming life of an ordinary social worker, serving as assistant director to an organization providing shelter to troubled youths in Schenectady, New York. Kaczynski and his wife, Linda, both practicing Buddhists, enjoyed the quiet anonymity of a life spent helping others. But that changed quickly when the Kaczynskis, fearing for the safety of others, informed the FBI of their suspicions that David's brother, Ted, was the so-called Unabomber, whose letter bombs had killed three people and injured 23 others between 1978 and 1995. Although the FBI agreed to keep Kaczynski's role in the investigation confidential, the story of his involvement was leaked almost immediately after his brother's arrest. Overnight, Kaczynski became a key figure in a story that gripped the nation and fed a sensationalistic press. Worse, the U.S. Justice Department sought the death penalty for Kaczynski's brother, despite clear evidence that Ted was suffering from severe mental illness. It would have been easy enough to shrink from the publicity, but Kaczynski and his wife made good use of it. Stepping into the unwelcome glare of the media spotlight, they became vocal opponents of the death penalty. Quote, after seeing Ted dehumanized by the prosecution rather than treated as a mentally ill person, I knew that I had to do something to change this flawed system. Ted pled guilty in exchange for life imprisonment without parole, and the couple took up the fight on behalf of others. Kaczynski, now executive director of New Yorkers Against the Death Penalty, sees his work fighting capital punishment as fundamentally rooted in Buddhist philosophy. This is, this touched me so much, you know. I thought it was going to say, Buddhists don't do any harm, or they don't take life, or they don't kill. What he said, this is his piece of Buddhist philosophy. The human birth is an opportunity to move closer to enlightenment, Kaczynski said. Execution cancels that gift. Isn't that touching? I mean, I, I really love that, you know? The human birth is an opportunity to move closer to enlightenment, Kaczynski said. Execution cancels that gift. Do you know that the Buddha talked about how rare it is to have a human life? That the human life is the only one in which there is this latitude of the heart to move. We have instincts and impulses, but we can say, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. And every time we do that, you know the, the, you know, the, the, the cartoon that I told you a little bit before of the people, stand, three men standing on the winner's stands, and one of them is thinking about punching out the guy that won him. But he's not doing it. He's standing there. He's just thinking it. That human beings could feel like doing something and not do it. There's a, one of the articles in here tells a story of a, um, a Thich Nhat Hanh retreat a long time ago where uh, some of the people there were Vietnam veterans who are now on retreat really were not only recovering memories of terrible things they did as soldiers in uh, an invaded land, because that's what soldiers in an invaded land are supposed to do. But the terrible feelings they have about had about having done it, 
and the amends that they felt that they wanted to try to make in their heart and in the world, many of whom went back to Vietnam and tried to do things. Of course, you can't put back what you've completely destroyed. But I actually think a lot about the kind of heart change that happens, even when they can't cha- when a person can't change something that they've broken on the outside and it's irrevocably broken or ruined or killed. What if their heart changes and that the heart that they then carry for the rest of their life is a changed heart? You know, if we believe it comes into the next life, a changed heart. But even in this life, the numbers of heart that, hearts that it changes and redirects by telling its story, by witnessing about itself. You know, maybe it's, I, I'm just really understanding in this moment the preciousness of a human birth having to do with the fact that we tend so much not to get it right, but then we have the chance to fix it up, make it right, and tell other people that making it right is a possibility, that, that that's the message. You can actually take your heart and transform it, make it something different. And that, that's actually the, the, the place of coming to some sort of a peace. So he's a Tibetan Buddhist, Kaczynski, in the Kagyu school. My work, he said, is a form of practice, one that requires patience and openness. I try to develop skillful means to draw people into a more compassionate understanding of the human condition. So that's what he's doing. That New York uh, organization is instrumental in, has been instrumental in persuading a number of influ- influential religious, labor, and professional organizations to support a moratorium on the death penalty. Imagine a society that kills people, you know? I mean, as we do in war, but takes people and kills them. Let me see if I want to tell you about um, whose article I want to tell you about. I wanted to tell you about the quote from Thich Nhat Hanh that says, "Peace in his book, Peace in Every Step, where he says, mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. That it really, and I take that as a confirmation of that the heart doesn't sit still that it's not possible just to say, wow, look at that about human beings. They do that to each other. It's not possible to really see that and really get it in your own fiber of your being without saying, I am moved to do something about that, one way or another. Not everybody will do it the same way. One of the turning points in my own religious thought years ago was reading Thomas Merton about his experience during the civil rights movement, which really happened just after he had ordained and moved to Gethsemane. So here he is, a passionate civil rights activist. His friends are marching in Selma, and, and he's sitting in Gethsemane. 
and he goes to his abbot and says, maybe I shouldn't be here. I feel very much like I should be on the outside and making some difference, really. What am I doing here, sitting in a monastery? Out there is where the action is happening. And his abbot telling him, you have no idea, really, what your, um, what your prayers and what your thoughts are doing. And I was very touched by that because not everybody is a marcher and not everybody is a front lines man the barricades. And Merton's thoughts also contribute to the world of thought, especially since Merton wrote down his thoughts and sent them out to so many people and we all knew what his thoughts were. Who knew what a big impact, or maybe his thoughts that he wrote down and sent out from his contemplative life made more of a difference than if he had been one more body out there at that time. I have a sense that we each do what we do in the way that we can do it. Would you like to, what would you like to know? The 10 ways in which you can, 10 practices to change the world, Susan Moon, they're very easy. Vote, that's the first one. She quotes me actually, you want to see what she says? It's true. She says, Sylvia Boorstein says that voting was a religious act in her family when she grew up. It was, it was. Nobody ever didn't vote. I, and you couldn't vote an absentee ballot because this was a long time ago in New York. Everybody had to go to the polls. My mother had fragile health. The weather in November is often not good in New York. Uh, my grandparents spoke English very poorly. I had to review with them the ballot and figure it out with them. But we walked as a group, you know, like you see families go together in church on a Sunday. We all walked to the polling place together, whether, whatever it was, and voted. It's impossible for me to think about people not voting. I, I have never missed an election from the very time I got to be old enough to vote. I voted for John Kennedy in 1960, and I lived in Georgia, and I had to stay up till the next morning to hear how the California vote was. We were up all night listening, and I can't imagine when you say to people, are you going to vote? And they say, well, Vote, that's the first one. Do the work of supporting democratic elections. It means go out and sign up people to vote. Um, give money. And then she talks about it being a form of practice as dana. She said dana is an essential Buddhist practice. It's the first paramita. It's the antidote to greed, which is the cause of most of our suffering. By giving generously to the candidate or the cause of your church choice, you are training yourself to overcome clinging, thereby cultivating joy now and in the future. She goes on talking about moveon.org. I tell you, I've been so, so buoyed up by moveon.org. I feel like a convert into a cult almost. That, you know, they say one of, the, one of the characteristics of being caught up in a cult is you do whatever they say. <laughs> Every day I get something from moveon.org and they say, do this, and I do it. You know? <laughs> You know, sign here, send money, sign here, send money. Yes, I thought to myself, I should stop and think a minute. How many, you know, I've sent quite a lot of money, but you know, every day they have a very good thing that they're going to do tomorrow with my money and a lot of other people. And then they tell me the next day, okay, because of you and X many other people, we have $200,000 and we have this ad on, you know, on television all over such and such a state. And you can punch here and you can hear the ad and... So, read and write. This is interesting. 
and, and she put and uh, the way that she's made these all really dharma to read and write she says traditional for buddhists to study the sutras or teachings we can find sutras not only in Pali Canon but in stones and grasses as the 13th century Zen master Ehad Dogen tells us and today we find sutras in alternative media sources as buddhists we try to see things as they are the mainstream news media doesn't show things as they are but rather as the powers would be would like us to believe they are and then she gives a whole list of how to see things that you could read listen and talk to people you don't agree with that's so hard Remember that we are all related and interconnected, whether we like each other or not. Present administration not accepted. You know, that, that's the hardest thing. I do read the other political views in the paper. And it's very hard to do it because, A, I'm afraid that they might be right, I might be wrong, and I might be confused. B, that they might be wrong and that their opinion might hold sway and my view, which actually is the better way, might not prevail. Either way, but I, what I watch is that it's a hard practice for me to read it. And I do it. I can't bring myself to listen to the vituperative radio. That's too much. Praise the people. This is Shanti Deva. It's a great thing for Shanti Deva to say. Praise all who speak the truth and say your words are excellent. When you notice others acting well, encourage them in terms of warm approval. Shanti Deva is 8th century, and it sounds like a teacher's manual for the kindergarten in the 21st century, doesn't it? But really, I mean, never mind just wait to see how things unfold. Somebody does great. Tell them, that was wonderful. Good for you. I, I think actually, now this is actually a little bit of sociology, and I'm, and I'm out of my class, but I don't think this is a praising culture particularly. I don't know, that maybe it comes from a are very puritanical roots, like, um, you know, don't, uh, don't take on too much, don't tell anybody they're too wonderful, they're relaxed. Uh, you have to keep people... <laughs> Bear witness, this was an important one. Bear witness, Mahagosananda leads peace walks every year from one place to another. He leads a peace walk a across Cambodia every year. He says, our, joint, our journey for peace begins today and every day. Each step is a prayer. Each step is a meditation. Each step will build a bridge. And just to tell you a little bit about what uh, Wes said, he, he says some interesting things. But one of them, he said, um, some teachers may prefer, he's talking about Buddhist teachers and should they have political views and should they say them. Some teachers may not follow politics very closely, and we may be better off not hearing their voices on the subject. However, those of us who do follow politics, to deliberately exclude those opinions from our teaching is a form of dishonesty. Isn't that interesting? It's a form of dishonesty and does not serve either our sanghas or the wider world. I thought that was so interesting, to exclude one's political opinions. Like, I, I actually... I'm talking more about it this year than ever before, but I have in mind we're a 501c3, you're not supposed to have a political opinion. But to, he's saying to exclude it would be a form of um, a form of dishonesty because here what we are talking about 
is supporting those those institutions in the world that have to do with compassion and generosity and justice and uh, respect for all beings. And if you see it and could call it at least the way you see it and even give the caveat, I could be wrong, and everyone is welcome here. Everyone is welcome. I would love it if somebody said, you know, I'd like to have a differing political opinion here and tell you why I am seeing things another way. We could talk. That would be... But he says to leave it out would not be... wouldn't be... Um, He said, he, he said, I think it behooves us as Dharma teachers and practitioners to talk to each other to help choose people who will govern society in ways that support Dharma principles leading to the least suffering for all. Anyway, I'll be interested if you read it and you tell me whether you think... Um, James Shaheen did a good thing, didn't do a good thing. What do you think, Tony? Tony was the one who told me about the article. So it's on account of Tony here who I, that I read it all yesterday. I guess I wish that he would have led with uh, Diana Winston's piece mm -hmm. rather than Winston's Diana's was very good. I, wanted, I just want to read you the name of Diana's piece because it will cause you to go out and buy it. It's just like Diana. She's a very good writer. Uh, I really think you should take that five-day retreat with Diana. This is called Seven Reasons Why It's Better Not to Hate Them. And in parentheses underneath that it says, even if they are really horrible, greedy, corrupt, and completely deserve it. <laughs> and here I have seven reasons. This is a good way to end. Okay, the seven reasons are don't hate it, because it really is don't hate anyone. This is a very good way to end. I didn't know what I was going to say for my last thing to say. Ah, it's already 11. I ran out of my last thing to say. <laughs> this is the last thing I want to say. I am now at a place where I think the most important line of my personal liturgy is the first line of the metta chant that says, may I be free of enmity and danger. That governs my life. I think, I, and, and for a long time I thought it meant May I not have anybody after me, no enemies coming after me and putting me in a place of danger. I don't think it means that. I want to be free of enmity on anybody because then I am in danger of being estranged from my loving heart. That is the one line that shapes the whole of my Dharma practice. I cannot like people, but I don't want to wish them will, ill. I do not want to hate people in their heart. Actually, that's a scripture line as well in Western scripture. Do not, do not hate your brother in your heart. Don't hate anybody in your heart. Hate in the heart is a very painful thing. So here's Diana on the seven reasons. First of all, hatred hurts. It doesn't feel good to hate people. Second of all, no one is essentially or inherently anything. That's so important. Say so-and-so is an evil person. Say in that person unclear thinking is happening. But so-and-so is fundamentally a person. To be able to rehabilitate somebody in your mind so that they remain a person worthy of care, they're confused completely, then you take care of them. If they were your child and confused completely, 
You would be running to every healer and therapist in the whole world to take care of them. You would not hate them in your heart. How will we, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts. How to be able to take the person who is most offensive to us and think that's not what this person is. The person is a person deluded or confused or misled or driven, but there's some way that I can take action, I can vote them out of office, I can be opposed to letting them be out in society, I can do all kinds of things, but I don't have to hate them in my heart because hate hurts. Third thing, recognize that we are that way too. Her first sentence is great. She said, no one corners the market on greed, hatred, or delusion. Nobody does. We all have them. Whatever anybody else is guilty of, I have it too. Fourth reason, we don't know for sure who's right. Now, that's a huge one for me. I come from a long line of people who thought that they always knew who was right and that I usually do think I know who is right and it's usually me that I think is right. And actually, it's been a very successful ego tool for organizing myself in the world because I've been able to put myself forward. I'm sure about myself. I've been proud of myself as I come from a long line of um, opinionated women. I do. Now, I, maybe I'm the first in that line of opinionated women who has opinions, feels strongly about their opinions, but also has the thought, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. And I've been wrong. I've been wrong. Five, you can't fight karma. Buddhism teaches that acts that cause suffering to oneself or others are rooted in ignorance of karma. According to the teachings of karma, unwholesome actions lead to suffering in this life or the next. From a Buddhist perspective, the act of hating can only bring the hater unhappy results in the long run. So hating is just not a good idea, karmically speaking. I think that's really... Talking about the Dalai Lama and the tremendous compassion he feels for the Chinese. Six, through understanding will will come compassion. One reason we hate is we don't see the full force of the other person's situation. When I can't feel compassion, whether I'm fighting with my partner or listening to a news item on the radio, I can ask myself, what is it that I don't understand? That's a tremendous thing to think about. When I am mad at someone, when I cannot put down ill will, I think to myself, what am I not getting here? You know, that I cannot like, that's fine. I mean, a lot of things I don't like. But ill will, which is causing me pain, is like I pick up a hot coal, I'm walking around with my hand, and I'm not putting it down. I have to look at, why am I not putting this down? What is causing me to keep carrying this around? This is crucial. Because you can do not liking without doing ill will. That's such a big thing. And the last is hatred will never cease with hatred. Only by love alone will hatred cease. This is the eternal law. That line from the Dhammapada is so crucial. Otherwise, we'll get back, and they'll get back, and we'll get back, and they'll get back. (sighs) Killing people to liberate them. So I would be really interested uh, when you read this. Thank you very much for reminding me about Diana's. Diana's was great, uh, and it sounds just like her. Um, 
This is uh, fall 2004. It just came in the mail, so it's probably out. So maybe if we're going to just sit for a minute, I'll tell you that the name on this uh, speaker series from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, um, the same people that said there's one word for the spiritual truth, the name of the speaker series is In the Presence of the Divine. And I was thinking about that there's a way in which Somehow, I'd like to frame that as, uh, what if we were living this whole life in the presence of the awareness of the preciousness of a human birth, ours and everybody else's? That would be a divine awareness in the preciousness of a human birth. There isn't another time than this moment, ever. If I thought to myself, in every single moment, this is the only moment that I'm going to have this moment, what am I going to do with it? It's very precious. I have a choice. And then make a, a vow. Somewhere in this article, in, in this whole magazine, it says, make a dedication. And then it says in a kind of an offhand way, we Buddhists are used to making vows. Make a vow. May whatever merit we accrue from our studying and being here together and talking together from our friendship and fellowship, from our goodwill, May whatever merit we accrue be offered as an offering for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 18, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.